You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. So the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, it's written around 900 B.C., and uh, it covers a time period right around the time of Ruth, and not, not long past the time of Ruth, from 1150 to 1000 B.C. And the author is partly Samuel, uh, but Samuel passes away in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Uh, so from 1 Samuel 25 all the way to 2 Samuel uh, 4, uh, obviously Samuel couldn't be writing that. But if you look in 1 Chronicles 29, it seems to be that this book was compiled by three different people, or written and compiled by three different people. You have Sa- Samuel, you have Nathan, and you have Gad, okay, uh, are the authors of this book, presumably here. And the audience, again, is the nation of Israel. Now, First and Second Samuel, okay, everyone sneezes out at once. We're good? Okay. <laughs> You're making me want to sneeze and... Okay. First and Second Samuel are two separate books, but they're the same story all the way through. The only reason First and Second Samuel have been split is because they were too long. Okay. Uh, so originally they were one book, uh, but they have been split. And really, uh, a lot of people say it's just we didn't have a scroll long enough. Uh, so now it's only fifty-five chapters. Uh, between the two books, you have 31 in 1 Samuel, 24 in 2 Samuel. But if you take a quick look and you hold all of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and then you hold the 150 chapters of Psalms, and they're about the same thickness there. There's a lot in 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, so the book is sometimes referred to as the first book of the kings. How many of you have that in your Bible, uh, a title underneath 1 Samuel, and also says the, the first book of the kings? Yeah, okay, so you have First and Second Samuel, which would be the first book of the kings, second book of the kings, and then, confusingly, you have First Kings and Second Kings, which would be the third book and the fourth book of the kings. And the reason, I mean, this alternate title is fitting because beginning in the book of First Samuel, we're going to see a national transition taking place from Israel being ruled by judges to Israel being ruled by kings. And it's important at this time to remember 1 Samuel picks up where Judges leaves off. Now, you have the book of Ruth, which takes place kind of right in the middle of Judges, probably towards the beginning of it. But 1 Samuel takes place after Judges. So what do we know about the time of Judges? Good time, bad time? Bad time. Time of spiritual darkness, time of national rebellion. Um... And it's bad because Israel has failed to drive out the Canaanites from their lands. There's idolatry, there's intermarriage with the heathen, there's injustice, there's human sacrifice, there's gross immorality. The tribe of Benjamin has been knocked down to only 600 people. I mean, these are some of the worst times in Israel's history now. And not long into 1 Samuel, you're going to easily see how it picks up where Judges leaves off. I mean, within the first few chapters of Samuel, you're going to see the nation of Israel has become so corrupt, even their priests are engaged in, in unspeakable wickedness. And God's presence, okay, so think about God's presence, the, the presence that was lost when they sinned in the garden. The presence that God promised to give back 
to Abraham and his family, the presence that descended on Mount Sinai, the presence that indwelled the Holy of Holies, the presence that was told in Leviticus how you can approach that presence in a holy way, the presence that made Israel different from other nations, that, really important, right? Key part of Israel as a nation, okay? That presence is no longer respected by Israel. It's expected by them. No matter what we do, God is going to be there. It's no longer feared by Israel. It's taken for granted. It's no longer seen as a reason to be holy. It's seen as some tool to accomplish their own will. Oh, when we want this to be done, bring God's presence with us. That's what we need to do. No, that's not how it works. Didn't the last book of Judges, though, tell us why this is happening? What is the last book? Uh, I'm sorry, the last verse in Judges they just did what they wanted to do because there was no king. There's no king in Israel, so people just do what they want to do. So at the end of the book of Judges, you see God actually setting us up, okay, apparently they need a king. Apparently they need a head, a leader, somebody that they can look to in order to guide them in the way that they should go, like a Moses, like a Joshua, like a Gideon, something like that, okay? But there is no king in Israel, so they're just doing whatever they want to do. First Samuel is going to show us how Israel transitioned from judges to a united kingdom, and it's going to do this by telling the story of four men. It's going to tell the story of Eli. It's going to tell the story of Samuel, Saul, and David. Eli, Samuel, Saul, and David. Let's go ahead and pray before we go forward, and we'll get into it. Lord, we need you tonight, and we ask that you would please help me to be clear, help me to be brief, and help us to learn something. Uh, the application that is going to come at the end, uh, help it to sink deeply into our hearts, and I ask this in your name. Amen. So these four men actually give us a fairly effective outline uh, for the book. So chapters 1 through 7 is going to be part 1. 8 through 15 is part 2. 16 through 31 is part 3. So 1 through 7, 8 through 15, and 16 through 31. Chapters 1 through 7 is going to be all about Eli and Samuel. During part 1, Eli is going to die. So then part 2, 8 through 15, it's going to be Samuel and Saul. And then from 16 to 31, it's going to be Saul and David. So part 1 is who? Eli and Samuel. Part 2 is who? Samuel and Saul, part three is Saul and David. And many of these stories are going to be very familiar to us, okay? And the book of the kings, or the four books of the kings, contain some of the most vivid stories in the Bible, beside the Gospels, I, I think. So I hope to bring out why these stories are here, why are they told, and show us how they all work together to support the main message of the book. Now remember, 1 Samuel isn't the whole book, but there is a, a logical end to 1 Samuel. But remember, we're actually going to continue this book next week in 2 Samuel. So let's get right into chapter 1. Right away in verse 1 through 8, we're introduced to a family. We have a husband named Elkanah, and he has two wives. So right away, we have an issue. But remember, God is bringing his people slowly, step by step, out of these pagan practices that they always knew in Egypt and in these other places. And he's slowly 
um, bringing evolution to their lives so that they can understand what it truly means to serve him. So you have a man here who has two wives. One of them is named Penina. She had children. One of them's name is Hannah. She did not have children. She was barren. Verse 5 says that the Lord actually shut up her womb. But Hannah was Elkanah's favorite. Now, how many of you know a lady named Hannah? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. How many of you know a lady named Penina? Raise your hand. Okay, there's a reason for that. Penina was kind of a mean lady. Take away the kind of. She was a mean lady. Here's what happened, okay? Um, Penina used the fact that Hannah was barren to mock her. In Penina's mind, she was better than Hannah because she had children and Hannah didn't. Now, every year, it says in verse 3, Elkanah and his family would travel to Shiloh. Shiloh's important because that's where the tabernacle is, and that's where they go to worship. Every year they would go, and when Elkanah would give his offerings, uh, and especially his peace offerings, remember with the peace offering, a portion went to the priest, a portion went to the Lord, a portion was burned, and a portion went back to the giver. So when he would have that portion come back to him, he would split up those portions between his family. He would give it to Penina and her children, but he always gave Hannah more. The Bible says he gave her a worthy portion in verse 5. And that really kind of means like a double portion. And every year, Penina would make some comment to remind Hannah that she had no children. Now, I don't know exactly what she could say, but I could imagine her saying, you know, he may give you an extra portion, but I'm the only one who's given him children. Or maybe she would say, of course he gives you extra. I actually have people to share mine with. I mean, she was mean. And every single year, the Bible says, verse 6, her adversary also provoked her sore to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. How do we know it's Penina? Well, look in verse 7. As he did so year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Every year, Hannah would cry. Her sorrow was so deep, she wouldn't even eat. Elkanah would try to comfort her. It would not work. So one year, in verse 9 through 18, Hannah goes off by herself, and I can picture her walking in front of the tabernacle. And I want you to picture this lady. And she's praying. She's crying. The Bible says she's weeping sore. And she's got tears coming down her face, and she's praying. She's not saying anything out loud, but her lips are moving. She is deeply broken this lady, because she cannot have children. And she makes a vow to the Lord. And she basically says, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him right back to you. He will serve you all the days of his life. He'll be a Nazarite. He will serve you. And, and Elkanah was a Levite, so she can do that. He will be of the tribe of Levi. He will serve you in the tabernacle all the years of his life. I promise you that. Now, Eli who is the high priest at the time, and this is going to show you a little bit of how bad things got. Eli doesn't even have any discernment to know that this lady is praying. He, he thinks she's drunk. And he basically goes up to her and accuses her of being drunk in front of the tabernacle. How long are you going to drink? How long are you going to make yourself drunken? And she has to explain to him, no, that's not what's happening. I'm, I'm, I'm grieved. I'm sorry. Because I don't have a child. And Eli said, because of your prayer, next year you will have a child. And nine months later, a baby boy is born. His name is Samuel. 
And his word, his name means heard of God, and she keeps her vow. So I spent a little extra time on this story because it, it, this is important to grab. Okay, this is going to set up the whole, the whole book, so don't miss this. It not only tells us of how Samuel's birth was obviously brought about by God. Okay, Samuel was born because the Lord worked. He had shut up her womb. He opened up her womb by an answer to prayer. Nobody could deny the fact that God was involved in Samuel's birth. But also, it's going to give us some context into chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, we have a prayer from Hannah. And Hannah's prayer not only gives a perfect ending to her portion of the story in 1 Samuel, it also gives a perfect introduction to the rest of the book. Let's read it together, okay? Verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. Now, I want you to follow along with me. And as you're reading, I want you to think, what is the common theme? What topic does she keep bringing up? Verse 2, there is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread. They that were hungry ceased. So that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory for the, prince, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength shall no man prevail. Key phrase right there. By strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Does anyone see a common theme throughout there, a topic? She keeps on bringing up contrast, doesn't she? There's a rich person that's brought down. There's a poor person that's brought up. There's somebody with many children that is brought to have no children, somebody who has no children that suddenly has seven children. And God is the one who is behind it all. But what does she bring up at the very beginning? Talk no more exceeding what? Proudly. Let not what come out of your mouth? Arrogancy. Here's what she's saying. All I am, all you are, all I have, all you have is because of God. There is nobody, no thing like our God. So nobody has any reason to be proud. Right? Nobody has any reason to be proud. If you're exalted, he can bring you down. If you're low, he can bring you up. God is the one who's in charge. The strength of men means absolutely nothing. He alone can bring victory. So this whole idea of I am the master of my fate... I am where I am because of me. I'm going to make something of myself. 
That's not how it works. Maybe Hannah tried to do that for years, didn't she? But she finally got what she wanted in her heart because of something that she did or because she gave it all to the Lord. Because she gave it all to the Lord and she humbled herself and said, there's nothing that I can do about this. You must help me. You need to remember that theme throughout the rest of the book. That word anointed in verse 10, just a little clue here, that is the first time the word Messiah is used in the Bible. She's bringing out the fact the only person that will ever bring things about, the only person, person that can ever bring victory is God, and God is going to bring that victory through his king and exalt the horn of his Messiah. Hannah is setting up the entire rest of the Old Testament. Yes, God wants to bring victory, but he's not going to bring it through the proud. He's not going to bring it through a person. He's going to bring it through his king, and his king is the Messiah. That's really good. Okay? And this wasn't just some random prayer. This was a Holy Spirit-inspired prayer by Hannah, and it comes out to be prophetic. Now, throughout the rest of the chapter, we see just how bad things are in Israel. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are the priests, okay? The priests are stealing from the offerings of the people. They are having relationships with the women who come to worship at the tabernacle on the steps of the tabernacle. They are, uh, and, and then Eli, when he hears about this, he doesn't do anything about it. He just kind of gives them a lecture about it. Oh, you shouldn't do that. And that doesn't go anywhere. So God tells Eli through a man of God, your time as high priest is going to end. Both of your sons are going to die in the same day. That's how you're going to know that this is the truth. You guys are done. Now, chapter 3. It's such a mess right now. The Bible brings out in verse 1, the Lord basically stopped talking to people. Look at verse 1. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days, as in rare, like a precious gem. It was precious in those days. There was no open vision, no glimpses of God like there were in the past. How he appeared to Moses, how he appeared to Joshua and spoke to them, he hasn't been doing that because of how bad things are getting. And we're going to see this illustrated perfectly in the call of Samuel. So Samuel is asleep one night, and the Lord calls his name. Samuel thinks it's who? Thinks it's Eli that's calling him. Because the Bible, te the Bible tells us in verse, uh, let's see, in verse 7, Samuel had never heard the Lord speak to him before. So he goes to Eli and he says, you called me. And Eli says, no, I didn't. The high priest, the high priest, it takes three times. It takes three times for the high priest to realize that God is talking to this child. That's how long it's been. So he finally tells Samuel if he calls you again, say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And he does. And God tells Samuel basically exactly what the man of God told Eli before. But he's telling Samuel now, I'm about to do something, and when people hear about it, their ears are going to tingle. And Eli is not going to be the high priest anymore. His sons are not going to be the priests anymore. You are going to be raised up as a prophet. He wakes up the next morning. Eli comes up to him. What did the Lord say to you? And Samuel tells him. 
Straight up. Everything that the man, man of God told you, that's exactly what it is going to be. And before long, all of Israel is looking at Samuel, this, this child who starts growing up. They start looking to him as the prophet of the nation. When God spoke, he spoke to Samuel. And he spoke through Samuel. So do you see right away in chapters 2 and 3, we have an illustration of Hannah's prayer. Because you have the high and exalted high priest and priests, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, being brought low to nothing. And then you have a small Levite servant boy who's kind of a no-named person being brought up to be the prophet of the nation. So right away you see that in, in Hannah. The, the Samuel is known as the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Now, he wasn't the first prophet, obviously, but uh, that is what they call him. Chapter 4. Israel finds themselves in one of their many battles against the Philistines, and Israel loses badly. They lose about 4,000 men. Now, instead of Israel... Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage you a little bit, Okay? And I, I, I need you to stick with me. It's really going to come all full, full circle at the end, okay? So I want you to think with me. You're Israel. You just lost 4,000 men. I mean, you've been soundly defeated by the Philistines. What should we do? Pray? Yeah. Go to the Lord? Figure out what's going on here? No, they don't do that. Instead, they come up with a plan. We're going to go. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies, we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant with us to our next battle so that, quote, it may save us. So the Ark of the Covenant is important. Why? That is where God's presence stays. Nobody just waltzes into God's presence. Remember Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu? They tried that in Leviticus chapter 10. Didn't go too well. So suddenly they just think, we're just going to waltz into the Holy of Holies, grab the Ark of the Covenant, bring it out to battle with us so that it can save us. That's exactly what they do. The Ark of the Covenant means nothing. They lose 30, I think 30,000 men. 30,000 men of Israel die, and the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is now in Philistine hands. News comes back. Eli hears about it. He, oh, and by the way, guess who dies in the battle? Same day, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli hears about it. Your sons are dead. And he takes that news. The ark is gone. He can't take that news. He's an old man. He can barely see. He falls back in his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. Phinehas's wife, she hears about the news prematurely goes into labor because she can't handle the stress of it, dies in labor, but not before she names her child Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel. Chapters 5 and 6 contain incredible stories of how God defeats the Philistines by himself. Hey, he doesn't need an army. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Now, he'll use us if we will be submissive and obedient but when we're not submissive and obedient, the rocks will cry out. And so he has the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines take it, and they put it in Ashdod, which is one of their main cities, okay? I feel like I need to get out here to get your attention just a little bit, okay? So they put it in Ashdod. Now, Ashdod is one of the main cities of Phil Philistia, okay? 
and they put it in kind of like an act of spite. They put it in the temple of Dagon, which is like this half man, half fish. Okay, our God is awesome. Our God is incredible. Think of how the Bible describes God. The best man can come up with is a mermaid. Okay, that's what they're, that's what they're worshiping. Half man, half fish. And they put him in the temple of Dagon and they come the next morning and Dagon is flat on his face in front of the ark. Whoops. You're just going to have to read the story. It is incredible, okay? So the men in Ashdod start dying. They start getting plagues, like plagues that you don't want, trust me. And so they say, okay, we're going to send it to, um, I think it's Ekron? No, Gath, Gath. We're going to send it to Gath. Sound familiar? Who's from Gath? The giant. Yep, yeah, uh-huh. So they send it to Gath. They take it. They start dying. They start getting all these plagues. So then they go send it to Ekron. Now, if you are men of Ekron and you have heard all this coming and they say, we're sending it to you, what's your response? Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. They say, no, absolutely not. Send it back. Send it back where it belongs. So they make this cart, and they get these new, uh, these new cattle, and they start going, basically sending it back. And the cart, with new cattle, look, new cattle don't know what to do. Seriously, they would run off, just do whatever, and they go straight back to Israel. Think God didn't have something to do with that? Of course he did. And it comes to a place called Beshemesh. Gazuntite, right? Yeah, Beshemesh, Okay. And uh, the Israelites rejoice, and they take the cart, and they burn it uh, at, like, at an altar, and they take the cattle, and they sacrifice it. And then men of Beshemesh go up to the ark, open it, and start looking in. So 50,000 men die. It's like, it's like Israel is completely clueless. No, 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 come on. You don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. We, don't we know that? That's God, this, this isn't just some token. This isn't just some rabbit's foot that you bring out for a battle to, to rub on like it's a genie. Or, no, no, this is a symbol of God's presence. This is the most important thing in your nation. This is what separates you from other people. No other nation has God said, I want my presence there. And they're going up and just looking into it like it's some museum. And people die. So now what do the men of Beshemesh think? We don't want this anymore. So they grab it and they send it to Kirjath-Jerim. And that's in our next chapter here. Okay, So it goes to Kirjath-Jerim. In, verse, uh, in chapter 7, and look in verse 1 and 2. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came, fetched up the ark of the Lord, and brought it unto the house of Abinadab in the hill, and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim, that the time was long. It was 20 years. It was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years of not following the law. How many of you are not even 20 years old yet? Raise your hand. Your entire lifetime of not following the Lord, not following the law. Now, this is the time of judges. What's the cycle in judges? Sin, oppression, he brings repentance, and then there's a judge, and it leads back to victory, 
and then the cycle goes all around. So we've had the sin, we've had the oppression by the Philistines, now we have repentance, and who's the judge right now? Samuel. So what is Samuel going to do in chapter 7? Well, he's going to lead a revival. And that's exactly what he does. He says, you need to get rid of your idols. You need to stop worshiping those. You need to turn back to the Lord. And they do. They do. And the pattern of the book of Judges is still being continued here. Now, the Philistines here, the, the way that Samuel does this is he gathers all of the people to one city. Okay? He gathers all the people of Israel to one city in Mizpah. Now, if you're the Philistines, and you're basically conquering this area right now, and you see the entire nation gathering in one city, what are you thinking? Pep rally. They're getting ready to attack. They're getting ready to do something. We can't let this happen. So, as a Philistine, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to launch an attack. That's exactly what they do. They come around, and the people actually turn to the Lord and say, we need the Lord to deliver us. Samuel, pray for us. Samuel does pray the Philistines are defeated basically without even lifting up a sword. God is making his point clear here. Repentance and obedience, it, it gets God's attention, and God works for you. Now, in chapter 8, Samuel has two sons, Joel and Abiah. And as Samuel gets older, he basically trains his sons to become the judges in his place. And what we read immediately is Joel and Abiah start taking bribes, and they, they have impartial judgment. And so when Israel sees, okay, this next generation of leadership is crooked, and they're not going to lead us in the way that we should go, we're not happy with that. But instead of turning to the Lord, they go up to Samuel and look at what they say in verse 5 of chapter 8. And said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. Oh, Samuel's not happy. But look what God tells Samuel in verse 7. The Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people. In all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of the land, out of Egypt unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of king that shall reign over them. And Samuel goes to those people and he says, look, you're about to get what you want, but it is not what you think it is going to be. This king is going to take all of your best people. When he sees any of your sons that are strong or have any potential, he's going to take them to serve him. When he sees your daughters that have any potential, he's going to make them work in his palace as bakers and maids. When he finds good land that he wants that's a part of your inheritance, he's not going to care. He's going to take it for the palace. And when he sees good horses and good cattle, he's going to take all that from you too. And he says in verse 18 through 20, when you see all of that, you are going to resent your king. You're going to wish that you didn't have your king. You're going to realize it's not what we thought it was. And when you turn to the Lord for deliverance, he's not going to hear you. 
Samuel brings it out nice and clear. But look at what they say back to Samuel when he says that in verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Wait a minute. Are they supposed to be like other nations? Or are they supposed to be a holy nation? A peculiar people? Is a king supposed to fight their battles? Or is God supposed to fight their battles? But they've made their choice, and they're about to get it. So in chapters 9 through 11, we're introduced to Saul. Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. Why? Why is it the smallest tribe? Well, think of what just happened in Judges. They're just knocked down to nothing. So Saul's father is one of these men that survives. Kish is his name. Kish is the smallest family in the smallest tribe. Calling back to Hannah's prayer here, we have somebody who's from the smallest family in the smallest tribe, and we're being introduced to him now, okay? But he's tall, he's strong, and he is handsome. He is exactly what the Israelites want in a king. Now, maybe you're asking at this point, wasn't it God's plan? Wasn't it God's plan for them to have a king? Was it God's plan for Israel ever to have a king? Yes, it was. Look in Deuteronomy 17. Now, not right now, but there's laws, and it's actually called the law of the kings. And, he's, and the law is given. When you have a king, this is the type of person that he's going to be. He's not going to amass horses. He's not going to bring a bunch of wealth to himself. If you read who that king is, he's basically a priest who is going to lead all of the tribes at once. But it was eventually God's plan for them to have a king. But Saul was not God's will for them. Now, how do we know this? Well, first of all, wrong tribe. It's from the tribe of Benjamin. God says, my king is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Okay? He's the wrong type. He's being chosen on his looks. What does God say just a little bit later? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart, right? Yes, the inside, the, the, the heart of the person. Not God's thought. So it's not God's tribe, not God's type, not God's thought. They want a king like the other nations. Read Deuteronomy 17. God says, my king, when he comes along, he's going to be nothing like the other nations. It's going to be completely different. Big thing, not God's timing. Not God's timing. We have to understand that. There's something that could be God's will 10 years from now, but 10 years from now is different than now. And Israel is saying, we want it now. We want a king like the other nations now. So Saul comes along, even though everything that brought Saul to be king was wrong, when you read about Saul in these chapters, 9 through 11, it seems to be like everything's going well. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is because all of the stories about Saul in chapters 9 through 11 all have one thing that they're bringing out. Saul's humility. 
They're bringing out Saul's humility. Call back to what Hannah said at the beginning. Talk no more exceeding proudly. Let not arrogant words come out of your mouth, right? So in chapters 9 through 11, you're going to read about Saul. And even though he looked the part, he was a very humble man to begin with. So in chapter 9, verse 21, when Samuel tells Saul he's going to be king, he says, I'm nobody. Why would I be chosen to be king? Chapter 10, verse 16, even after Samuel anoints Saul to be king, he doesn't tell anybody. Chapter 10, verse 22, when Samuel goes to present Saul as king, he's hiding. Chapter 10, verse 26, Saul is from a place called Gibeah. So people from Gibeah, men from Gibeah who knew Saul and knew his personality, basically come out and say, have you ever met this guy? Saul? Saul, he's going to be king? He may look tall and he may look strong. Have you, have you ever met him? How is he going to save us? Look at the end of chapter 10. That's exactly what they're saying. There's no way. You'll get to know Saul in just a little bit. Absolutely no way. He, his, his, his bark is worse than his bite is basically what they're saying. Saul doesn't say anything to them. He gains his first main victory over the Amalekites. Uh, I'm sorry, over the Ammonites in chapter 11. But he gives all the glory to God. In chapter 11, 13, after that victory, the men are saying, Saul is our king. Find all those men from Gibeah who said they didn't want to be king, and we're going to put them to death. And Saul spares their life. So Saul's doing well right now, okay? Now in chapter 12, Samuel gives what we may call a farewell address, and he reminds them of God's faithfulness. He reminds them of their unfaithfulness. And even though Israel had promised to serve and follow God, they broke that promise by asking for a king. And Samuel brings that out. You broke the promise of serving and obeying the Lord by asking for a king. However, here's a choice for you. If you and your king continue obeying and serving God, God will be with you. If you choose to stop serving him and obeying him, God's going to be against you. And the Lord proves that Samuel is telling the truth. He sends a thunderstorm right in the middle of harvest time. A thunderstorm doesn't happen in harvest time. And it scares them to death. And that's kind of Samuel's farewell, kind of dropping out of being the judge and letting Saul step up into the kingship. And he compels the people, follow God, quote, with all your heart. Remember that. Follow God with all your heart. A year passes between chapter 12, chapter 13, and oh, the changes that a year can bring. While chapters 9 through 11 were all about Saul's humility, chapters 12, uh, 13 through 15 are all about Saul's growing pride. He starts taking credit for victories. Before a battle at one point with the Philistines, instead of waiting for Samuel, Saul grows impatient and he actually exercises the office of a priest himself rather than waiting on Samuel to do it. And when Samuel shows up, he basically says in the original Hebrew, you done messed up with that. And he says, your kingdom is not going to continue. So basically you are still king, but your child is not going to be. Your kingdom is not going to continue. He starts going into battles without inquiring of the Lord. He makes a vow to kill any one of his men who eats anything before one of his battles is won. And this brings his men to a point where they disobey God's law and start eating 
they win a battle and they find cows in a field. They start killing the cows and eating them raw. Jonathan doesn't know about the vow, so he eats some honey. And Saul hears about it and he says, well, Jonathan, because you did that, I'm going to kill you. And it's just, things just start like spiraling out of control. Saul, what is going on here? But the big, the big boo-boo, the big uh-oh, the big no-no is in chapter 15. God orders Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites, but Saul thinks he knows better than God, so he spares the best of the cattle and he spares Agag, the king. The height of pride is when somebody trusts himself more than he trusts the Lord. Did we get that? The height of pride, no greater evidence of pride than when a man will follow himself before he follows God. And Samuel comes up to him and what does he say? To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. He says, because of what you did, the Lord has chosen somebody else, a man after his own heart. Saul tries to get back into, and it just, everything falls apart from here. It ends in a very somber verse. We're wondering what's going to happen next. Chapter 15, verse 35. Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Changed his mind. No more Saul. Chapters 16 through 31 is when we're introduced to our next character. Who is it? David. David. Yeah, we're excited. And when you read the stories in chapters 16 through 31, especially chapter 16 through 20, I want you to take special notice of how God is working in both the lives of Saul and David. He's working in both of their lives. However, he's working in David's life to bring him up, bringing in Saul's life to bring him down. But God is working in both of their lives. When Saul was chosen to be king, all of Israel was for it. Oh yeah, he looks the part, he looks like a king from the other nations. That's what we want. When God chooses David, he's going to teach Israel a lesson that's even echoed in Jesus' teaching. And we talked about it before. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And David is that man after God's own Heart. We seeing a pattern here. We're seeing a lot of pride. We're seeing a lot of humility. God likes humility, resists pride. And really a main theme that's coming out is a heart. How's your heart? How is your heart for the Lord? Doesn't the Bible say that all the law and prophets are summed up in one commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart. Okay, you're following along. Very good. Chapter 16, verse 7 is where that, where that verse is. Now, the stories in chapters 16 through 31, we're going to go through this really quickly here. These aren't just random stories. Each story gives us a glimpse into who these people are. The Bible is basically going to answer the question, okay, here's Saul, and he's obviously spiraling down right now. What's going to happen to him? Lord's going to answer that. Who's David? Now, we know David because, you know, oh yeah, David and Goliath, and, and David, and, okay, okay, but imagine you're reading it for the first time here. Who's David? So, yeah, so we need to know just a little bit about him. What's his character? 
How does he approach certain problems? Does he have any weaknesses? What are his strengths? It's like an interview process. Uh, what, what is your weaknesses? What are your strengths? What, your, what are your opportunities? I hated it when people said that. We're going to talk about your successes and we're going to talk about your opportunities. Just call them failures, for goodness sake. I, I can handle it, right? So we're going to see that all throughout the rest of the book here. Chapter 16, you have the story of David playing the harp for Saul. Uh, and you have the story of Saul with just a bitter spirit and attitude. And what is the Lord showing us? Well, you have David who's being led by God and you have Saul being stopped by God. You have David who has the Holy Spirit and you have Saul who has an evil spirit of the Lord. Chapter 17, David and Goliath. Great story, but what is the story telling us? Well, you see Saul who's got nothing but cowardice and fear and, and inaction to do anything uh, while David, you have boldness and you have faith and there is a cause uh, to fight. Chapter 18, you have the story of Jonathan's great friendship. And we're going to go through this real quick here, but think of all these things that it's bringing out. So you have the friendship between David and Jonathan. You have the story of the ladies that start singing how Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. And how did Saul think, what did Saul think about that? What are you talking about? Okay, and so he starts getting really mad about that. That's exactly how he sounded like, by the way. Um, so Saul becomes so angry and jealous, he tries to kill David twice. And if you're wanting to know, is Saul really a strong guy? The guy took a javelin and shoved it into a stone wall. Saul, you don't want to mess with him. Twice he tries to kill David. And look in chapter 18, verse 12. Why is this happening? Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and departed from Saul. That's what's going on here. We see a contrast, okay? So Saul's next plan is to find a way to get David killed in battle. He's too good of a dodger here, okay? So I'm going to have to send him to battle. So here's the idea. David, I will promise you the hand of my daughter, Mirab, if you bring me, or if you kill 100 Philistines. And David is saying, me? A son-in-law of the king? No, no, that's not a light thing. Humility, okay? But then Saul brings it out again, and David says, okay, fine. He goes out and he kills 200. Saul thinks, oh, I'll get him killed against 100. David goes out and kills 200. Brings him back, so then Saul wants to spite him, gives Mirab to another person, but... It's, it's not Michael, it's Michal, okay, but Michael, okay? Is the younger daughter is in love with David, so they get together, and Saul knows that Michal has some problems, okay? So fine, go ahead and marry him. You're going to be a stumbling block to David, and he's just trying to do everything he can to bring him down. So with David's relationship to Jonathan, you see David's love. In Saul's relationship to David, you see David, or Saul's hate, you see in this story how uh, David has wisdom, Saul has jealousy, David's rise, Saul's descent. Chapter 19 contains an interesting story. Saul is trying to, uh, again, tries to throw a javelin at David. David escapes. He sends soldiers to David's house to kill him, but his wife uh, lets him escape. And David actually escapes to Ramah, and Samuel is there. Now, Samuel had made kind of a school of the prophets at Ramah, and um, Saul finds out that he's there. 
And he ends up coming to Ramah. And as he gets to Ramah, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul and Saul starts prophesying. And we're thinking, wait a second, Saul? The Holy Spirit comes on Saul and he starts prophesying? Is Saul one of the prophets? But in the 24 hours that Saul is basically slain with the Spirit and prophesying, David escapes. So you have David being protected by the Holy Spirit. You have Saul being distracted by the Holy Spirit so that David can escape. Incredible story. Moving on. Okay, chapter uh, 20. David and Jonathan come up with a plan. We're going to see if Saul is really trying to kill me. David, David, he's thrown a javelin at you three times. Okay, I think it's three times now. I'd say it's a pretty good yeah, it's a pretty good case that he's trying to kill you. <laughs> but no, we're really going to figure it out. And here's the plan. I'm not going to come to dinner for a couple days. Uh, and it definitely would have been noticed. There would have been four people at Saul's table. It would have been Saul, would have been Abner, would have been Jonathan, would have been David. Okay? So you would have noticed. First night, Saul doesn't say anything. Second night, where's David? Oh, he said that he wanted to go back to Bethlehem. Saul not only gets mad at David, he gets mad at Jonathan, says, I know you're protecting him. And by the way, you, you fool, do you realize that if David is king, you will never be king? You're next in line to the throne, not David. And he tries to kill Jonathan. And Jonathan is basically saying at the beginning of chapter 20, there's no way my dad's trying to kill you. No, at the end of it, dad's definitely trying to kill you, David. You need to run. So David runs. But not before he makes a covenant. David makes a covenant with Jonathan. When I do become king, I will be sure to care for you and your family forever. So here we see Saul's emotion and David's devotion. Contrast of people. But we're learning more and more about these characters. Chapter 21, David has the capacity for great faith by going and, and uh, going to actually a priest's place and, and uh, looking for direction. He actually gets the sword of Goliath here. He eats the showbread here. Um, and, and Jesus actually brings that up later. But then he, later he runs into a Philistine lord named Achish, and David thinks that Achish is going to kill him, so he starts acting like a madman. And he starts like spitting all over his beard and clawing at the doors. Just acting like a, like a crazy man. And the Philistines are like, who, who is this? Get him. And, and basically because they're saying, this is David. This is the one that everyone is singing about. And David goes, crazy. And he's like, no, this isn't him. Get him out of my face. This is just some madman. And David actually writes a psalm about this. But So he has moments of great faith. He also has moments of fear. He also has moments of, of doubt and where he doesn't know what's going to happen. David's human. That's what we're trying to, that's what we're bringing out here. Chapter 22, we see David's ability to lead. He takes 400 men. And the Bible uses three words to describe these men. They were discontented, they were in debt, and they were distressed. Three really good words to describe people. He takes those 400 men and by the way, those became his mighty men. David knew how to lead. He could take people from the low and bring him up and, and lead them to something more. We see care for his family. He takes his father and his mother to Moab. Why would he take his father and mother to Moab for protection? That's where great-grandma Ruth is from. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so he's taking care of mom and dad. David's care is contr contrasted by Saul's cruelty because Saul comes by, find all of the priests that help David escape, quote-unquote, and kills all of them. Eighty-five men kills them all. Chapter 23, we see David going out of his way to serve others, protect others. He, he spares a city of Keilah, but then Saul is only looking to serve himself. David goes out of his way to serve these people. Saul sees David's helping Keilah as an opportunity to attack David. So that's what he does, and it's really close. Saul gets really close to finding David, and if it wasn't for a Philistine attack... The Philistines were just as opportunistic. Oh, Saul's out at Keilah trying to catch David? Let's go to Saul's kingdom and try to take that over. So Saul has to come back. Chapter 24. I think Saul's made it clear at this point that he's trying to kill David. Well, now in chapter 24, David has a chance to kill Saul. But what does he do? He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. David knows he's going to be king. Think about this. He knows he's going to be king. He has an opportunity right here to kill his enemy, and to take his rightful place as king. Sounding like Lion King here, right? So Lion King had to come from somewhere. So he has a chance to do it, but he doesn't. In fact, what he does is he cuts off the hem of Saul's robe. Now, the hem of his robe was very symbolic. Only a king wore that type of hem. And even when Saul does that, the Bible says his heart smote him. His what smote him? His heart. Smote him. I, 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 I want to, hang on, hang on. Verse 5, chapter 24, verse 5. His heart smote him. What have I done? David is so convicted just by doing that. The simple act of cutting off the hem of Saul's robe brought great conviction to his heart. Now, David wasn't perfect. I think I need to end. I, I've, kept you, I've kept you for too long. Um, look. It's, it's difficult to end now because it's just there, there needs to be an application. So I am trusting that you are going to read the rest of the chapter. And what you're going to see in these stories are that David has good times. David has low times. He has times where he has faith. He has times where he has a lot of fear. There's one point where he's talking to Saul and Saul tells him, I will never chase after you again. That's in chapter 26. Chapter 27, David is so afraid, he even says, Saul is going to kill me. I know it. Saul is going to kill me. David actually goes and fights with the Philistines for a little bit. And all the time he's fighting with the Philistines, he's lying to the Philistines that he's actually fighting against Israel. And then God has to get him out of the Philistine army before the Philistines actually attack Israel. Uh, Saul crosses a line in chapter 28 and he goes, instead of going to the Lord, well, he tries to go to the Lord, but the Lord doesn't talk to him. So he goes to a witch. He goes to a witch to bring up the ghost of Samuel and it actually works. Now, if you want me to explain why it worked, it's not because witchcraft works, but because you can see the witch freaks out that it actually works because this is not supposed to be. The Bible isn't boring, okay? The Bible is not boring. It's incredible. Oh, and by the way, what did Samuel tell Saul? Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And now at the end, Saul's rebellion is actually leading him to participate in witchcraft? God knows what he's talking about. Chapter 29. What happens in chapter 29? Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Oh, 
David gains back all of his family that was taken from him. And basically, you can just see how the Lord is lifting him up to be a leader. Chapter 30, you have uh, David delivering his family, and it puts him in a position. He not only gains all his family back, but he gets spoil, a lot of spoil. And he takes that spoil, and he sends it out to men of Judah, all these elders of Judah, and all of his friends. So what you have in that story is David is being brought up to a place where he has influence over everyone. He is perfectly set to take over the kingdom. 1 Samuel 31, Saul dies. So does Jonathan. And that's how the book of 1 Samuel ends. Now, let me apply it and we'll be done. Okay? Oh, we're skipping so much. Okay. When I read 1 Samuel, I see a clear purpose and message behind everything. With Eli, you have a powerful high priest brought down. You have Samuel, who is, from the depths of his security, being one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. You have Saul, another man that God exalted from nothing, but soon his pride gets the most of him. Samuel tells him, when you were little in your own sight, that's when God made you king. But now you're too big for your britches, so God is bringing you down. Too big for your tunic. And God is bringing you down. David, another man brought up from nowhere, God is exalted from nothing, He's a lowly shepherd boy from Bethlehem, and he's not perfect. He has flaws, but for every failure, he seems to bounce back, and he bounces back even higher than before. Saul is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. David is getting better and better and better and better, even though they're both making mistakes. What's the difference between the two? Well, you have one man, God had his heart, and he was humble, and you have another man, God did not have his heart, and he was proud. How could Saul, the people's choice for king, be brought to the point of suicide? And how can David, a lowly shepherd from Bethlehem by the end of 1 Samuel, be brought up to be in the perfect position to take over the kingdom? There are two big lessons in 1 Samuel, and they're all under one enormous lesson. Big lesson number one, God will not use a proud Christian. He is not going to use a proud Christian. Now, we will never be perfect. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to fall. But the majority of, time, of the time when we fall, it's because we've taken our eyes off him, put them on ourself. That's called pride. And pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Stay low. Stay humble. God resisteth the proud, giveth grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Not in your time, Saul. Not in your time, David. In his time. Big lesson number two. The best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. All four men in this book were sinners, and in many instances, it shows. In 1 Samuel, Israel truly believed that they needed a king. We need a man. We need a leader who will judge us and lead us and fight us. But by the end of 2 Samuel, we're going to see it's real clear. Much more than Israel needs a king, they need a savior. But all they were caught up on is a king. We need a king. 
We want a king like the other nations. We want him to judge us and lead us and fight for us. That's what we need. No, that's not what you need at all. You need a savior. Enormous lesson that both of those big lessons fit under. If we want to be right and stay right, that's an issue of the heart. We have to keep our heart right. David is poised to be king not because of his looks or his status or his wealth or his accomplishments. That's what man looks on. God looks on the heart. When we keep our heart right, we won't be proud. We will remember that we are nothing. When we keep our heart right, so think of this. The Israel only needed a king because they turned their heart from God and turned it to themselves. If we allowed God to rule over our hearts, we wouldn't need a king to rule over our heads. Before God ever wants your talents, before he ever wants your money, before he ever wants your strength or your personality, he wants your heart. Now here's how I'm going to end. That's not just a cliche. Do you know what the Bible says about your heart? That's the worst part of you. It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So ladies, when a man comes up to you someday and says, I want to give you my heart, look back and say, no thanks. That's the worst part of a person. Now what do we like to do with the worst part of us? No, I don't want anyone seeing that. Think about it. The worst sin that you've ever done. You don't want anyone knowing about that. You don't want people knowing the thoughts that you had this morning. Driving here on the way to work and someone cut you off and it was a church member in the parking lot. And God says, that's what I want. I can do something with that. But it's broken and it's, and it's, it's a mess. It stinks. It's disgusting. What does Psalm say in Psalm, or David say in Psalm 51? After he sins with Bathsheba and kills her husband, he comes back and he says, Lord, all I have is a broken and contrite heart. And a broken and contrite heart, O oh Lord, thou wilt not despise. It takes some humility to say, Lord, here's the worst part of me. I don't know what you can do with it, but I trust it to you. Whatever you can do with it, however you want to use me, use me. I hide nothing from you. This is all, this is all I am, open. I'm not going to try to hide anything from you. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way to lead me in the way everlasting. The reason God used David is because he had his heart. Does God have your heart? Saul had much more potential as king than David did. But God didn't have his heart. Potential means nothing. Your heart is what God needs. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your talents. He doesn't need any of that before he has your heart. If he has your heart, he'll have all that other stuff. Give the Lord your heart. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.